You're listening to The Great Coaches Podcast. Hi everyone, Paul here, and just a quick message from me to let you know that if you are looking to improve the performance of your team, no matter whether it is a work, sporting, or community one, then we've developed some tools to help. On the website, you will find our Thriving Teams Diagnostic, which uses insights from the more than 200 great coaches we have interviewed to challenge you with a series of questions to help you understand how your team is performing. It's free and only takes a few minutes to complete. If you'd like to know more, you can check out our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Welcome to the Great Coaches Podcast. To me, being perfect is not about that scoreboard out there. This is a chance of lifetime. When you can understand the person, you can then work towards a common goal. We are all on the same team. Know your role and do it to the best of your ability. Focus on the fundamentals. We've gone over time and time again. Your defense has got to be better. Leave no doubt tonight. Great moments are born from great opportunity. My name is Paul Barnett, and you are listening to The Great Coaches Podcast, where we explore leadership through the lens of high-performance sport by interviewing great coaches from around the world to try and find ideas to help all of us lead our teams better. Our great coach on this episode is John Buchanan. John started his coaching career in 1978 with minor county side Oldham in England. In his first year, they won the league and cup double for the first time in 40 years. He then went on to coach Queensland to two Sheffield Shields, the first the state had ever won in their 69 years in the competition. And then in 1999, he was appointed coach of the Australian cricket team. In eight years leading the team, they won three consecutive World Cups, a world record 16 consecutive test victories, Ashes victories in 2001 and 2003, and a winning test series in India for the first time in 36 years. John finished coaching the Australian team in 2007 with a winning percentage of 77, a number higher than Phil Jackson, Alex Ferguson or Vince Lombardi. He has also held coaching and consulting positions with the Kolkata Knight Riders in the Indian Premier League and both the England and New Zealand cricket teams. John is a master coach. His record places him alongside the greats in all sports. He is calm and insightful and with the rare ability to combine building a dynamic vision with the innovation and the daily practice required to achieve it. 
It was a significant highlight for me to spend some time with John and some of the key things that stayed with me afterwards were his belief that great coaches try to take people beyond their horizons and out of their comfort zones. The importance of creating a vision that gives the team a competitive advantage and how your technical, physical, mental and tactical skills come together to determine your leadership skills. The story he shares about the creation of the Invincibles term to both motivate and define the record-breaking test team that he led and the importance of history and how that can create a sense of belonging and energy within a team. This was a wonderful conversation with a master coach and I hope you enjoyed as much as Jim and I did. The Great Coaches Podcast. John Buchanan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Paul. Lovely to be here. John, I'll just start off with a really easy question. Where are you today and what have you been up to? Well, uh, as you can see from the background, I'm in South Africa. I've rewound the clock and sitting in Johannesburg Stadium, having just won the 2003 World Cup. Always good memories, but at the moment, no, sitting in Brisbane. Weather's beautiful, as I say, in Brisbane, Queensland, you know. Perfect one day, even better the next. So enjoy my time here. Looking forward to talking to you about that famous match later on. I'd like to ask with a bit more of a broad question, if I could, because John, you're an academic, you've been a professor, you've taught, you're also a very accomplished sports person in your own right, and you've coached against and with many successful coaches all around the world. So what is it you think that great coaches do differently? I think what you just mentioned there is a pretty essential part to my coaching background, and and that is it's not from a strong playing background, it's not a a person who played so much cricket that they were an international player long-standing with, with a great record. Mine was a very mediocre and very small time in first-class cricket, but it probably enabled me then to do a heck of a lot of other things in my life before coaching or professional coaching really entered into what my career would be. And so I think that's one part that I think really, really good coaches bring to an environment, and that is that they bring a whole set of different experiences to a sporting environment. Because I think, again, a lot of sports people can really get just caught up in in the so-called bubble of their sport, in the dressing room of their sport, in the people that know their sport and want to talk about their sport. And, and that's obviously where they feel comfortable. They know that's their experiences. Really, the, I think that one of the key roles, again, of very good coaches is to try to take people take people beyond their horizons, take them out of their comfort zones. And that can be certainly out of their comfort zones in a playing sense so that you can extend their skill base and you can consistently challenge them to be better at what they do. But I think it's your responsibility as a coach is to fit them out for hopefully life beyond sport because, again, one of the key realities of, of sport, certainly for athletes, is that there is no doubt your career is going to finish. There is absolutely no doubt, particularly at an elite level. And so in, a, in one respect, as a young of becoming a, an elite sports athlete and, and maybe representing their country, they're always in transition because dream, that career path, can finish tomorrow for a whole range of reasons. It always seems to me so important that a head coach needs to ensure that while players need to deal with and need to be very clear on how they deliver performance in what they're doing right now, they also need to understand that there's a broader world out there of which they're very much part of and which they could be thrust into, not at their own choice, but the choice of somebody else or through injury or other circumstances. And they need to have some sort of preparation for that. So I think 
certainly from my point of view, good coaching was was always about the person. Then from the person, it, it came to what they currently do very well, and that was playing cricket. And so uh, how to help them in both arenas, but obviously challenge them extensively in the arena that they're most familiar with at the moment, which is playing their game of cricket. John, I'd like to wind the clock back a bit if I could, because what's fascinating about your record as a coach is that there's been three occasions where you've led teams that have broken long-standing records. So all the way back with Oldham in 79, they won the League and Cup double for the first time in 40 years. Then Queensland won the Sheffield Shield under your coaching after 69 years of trying in 95. And then again in 2001, you very famously coached the Australian cricket team where they broke consecutive test match victory record. Is there any red thread apart from yourself, that sets these teams apart? I don't know that there's any one magic bullet that sets them apart, but I think, again, my particular role in those victories, results, whatever it might be, was, again, always to try to challenge the status quo. If I went to the point where I first started professional coaching, not necessarily professional playing, but professional coaching, which was for Queensland in 94, 95, I mean, it made me work out how I coached and that meant I had to understand my philosophy to coaching. I needed to understand what my cornerstones were. I needed to understand my values, my principles, but I also needed to understand how I put those into place. And that was a reflection definitely upon my growing up and all my experiences growing up through coaches, teachers, teams, university life, and then my own experiences as a, as a professional cricketer, of which England was a part of that and various teams were a part of that. And then beyond that, what I had learned academically, being a father, parents to peers, to watching other people do what they do, both good and bad. So the Oldham experience, I think, was an early forerunner of, of me as a coach. I was obviously there as a professional player. And of course, the professional is the person who has to win games for the club and while you'd like to think that you're a good professional and you're winning games for the club, there was no way that one individual could really do that by themselves. So there had to be a way to ensure that the rest of the crew were either in unison or in sync or supporting what it is that you were trying to do. And I do recall I had two seasons. The first season was uh, one of exploration, I think, from my own point of view, just to, as a player and learning new skills and learning new environments and playing in uh, different arenas and playing a bit of minor county cricket as well. So that was an exploration. But in doing that, it, it taught me a lot about the club and a lot about the way that they operated and both good and bad. And so when I went back for that second year, which was the year that we won that cup double, it enabled me then to bring that to the fore in the dressing rooms. I mean, initially, I think a professional, again, as I say, is, is a hired hand. And you come in and you win games and hopefully putting on reasonable performances, it helps your team win enough games that they can win pieces of silverware. But again, it was my view, while I certainly wanted to perform well and do as much as I could for the team, that first year gave me good insight and it gave me a very good relationship with the captain and the senior players and some of the younger players in the club. So by the time we came around the second year, then I had a much stronger voice in terms of how we should be going about what we are going about when we were playing well, how to reward and highlight and support that, and when we weren't, to speak up and pinpoint some of the things that should be happening and how we go about doing it from then on. So I guess 
that then, plus as I said, all the other backgrounds flowed into what I presented to Queensland Cricket when I interviewed for the role for that coaching position with, with Queensland. And, and so it, it gave me a really good insight to me as, as a coach. And some of my reference points are always about vision. It's always about wanting to be ahead of the game. It's always trying to change the game. It's always about how do I create competitive advantage for us as a, as a group before we get on the field. Also about, as I said before, the person, not just the cricketer. It's about, in a sense, never being satisfied. So no matter what we're doing, there's always room for improvement, whether it's your technical skills, your physical, your mental, your tactical skills, or and indeed your team and your leadership skills. So there's so much that can be done. And it was also, again, trying to drive a, a notion that results are important. Results are important in, in business life and politics no matter where you go and certainly in sport because a very um, international sport and elite sport is very cutthroat business these days and, and we often see no matter what the sport is that if the team's not winning the finger is pointed at the at the head coach and that person is replaced very quickly and it seems to be a board's decision that that's the magic bullet that will buy them the next set of wins. So for me, just never being satisfied, always trying to make sure that there's room for improvement, creating environments, as I said before, that are really challenging and stimulating and, and take people outside their comfort zone so that they're, in a sense, fitting them out to be a better player into the future, as well as obviously trying to deal with today. So all those things are wrapped up into, I guess, philosophy and an approach, and that's what I presented at Queensland Cricket and successful in getting the job from Jeff Thompson at that time. And we were lucky enough to win that Sheffield Shield first year, which was incredible. And then spent four years with Razor, so five years in total. I had an unsuccessful season with, with Middlesex, but that taught me a heck of a lot about coaching and people and culture and so on. And so all those experiences then sort of were folded into me as a coach that took on the Australian cricket team. So you're always learning. And so at that point, I was ready to become this international coach and, and was given that opportunity. So, again, in a sense, the thread was still really trying to understand the players individually and collectively, how they operated, trying to understand the culture that was operating at the time, trying to get close to the captain so there was a real bond and a real relationship with him, trying to ensure that we did have things that other people didn't have whether that be training regimes, whether that be computer analysis, whether that be data, interpretation of that, whether it be uniforms that we wore. So looking at all the little pieces that contribute to culture, but a team culture that's based on leadership and it's based on high performance. And so I suppose long answer to short question, but there's some of the pieces I think would find their way threading through any team that's successful and potentially any team that's successful over a long period of time because I think there's a difference between high performance and high performing. Now, high performing is generally, again, you, know, you might have a good match series or even season, but it's very hard to replicate, very difficult to get back to where you were the previous season, whereas for me, high performance means you don't necessarily win everything, but you're challenging for that first or second spot or the final spots Every year, not easy to do, obviously, but I think a real measure of a strong team, a strong outfit, a team that is, in a sense, pretty well aligned with how they go about being successful. John, when I was 
preparing for today, I watched a video where you talked about your application for that Queensland coaching role. And the panel interviewing you asked how you would win the Sheffield Shield, something they hadn't done to that point. But you replied by saying it wasn't about winning the Sheffield Shield. It was about dominating domestic cricket for the next 10 years, which I thought was a wonderful answer and talks a lot to the way that you approach setting a vision. So I'd like to ask you about your experience in setting vision for teams and what advice you would have to other coaches who are going through that same process of setting a vision. I'm not sure whether everybody and every really good coach does do that. And that's no disrespect to anybody else. And it's not saying I'm unique, but for me, it's always been a, I guess, a bit of a feel. But the feel is based on, I guess, information. So if we went to that Queensland example, not that I was, I was closely following the Queensland team, although I had been coaching club cricket for two of the three years prior to me taking on the role. So I'd coached at uni and at my old club, University Career Club in Brisbane. And we had a number of players that were in the Queensland side at that time. So I suppose, and, and a couple who had recently sort of moved on from the Queensland team. So I suppose there was always some conversations and some insights from them about what the Queensland team was like, how they were being coached what they were doing in training. So that information was there and probably the same with the Australian team because, again, in Queensland, we had the Ian Healy's and the McDermott's. Border was coming back for his first or final year, albeit it turned out he had two more, but, you know, Stuart Law and, and Jimmy Murray were playing in the one-day team. So they would bring back some thoughts and insights, I suppose. And I guess with that sort of information, I certainly be- believed in the Australian team but they were only scratching at the surface. You know, they, they had some wonderful resources in terms of players and great support from parent organisation, Cricket Australia. Yet, they seemed to lose games that they shouldn't lose games or they lose series that they shouldn't lose series. That seemed strange to me. And Queensland, I guess, uh, there was that insight, but I also was able to reflect, as I said before, you know, 16 years ago, but on my experiences with Queensland and trying to win a Sheffield Field. So, so out of that, I guess the pieces kind of float around in your mind and from there, it is about dreaming. I think certainly in business, certainly in life, certainly in sport, I don't think there's sufficient time allowed for dreaming, just what could be, what's possible, not be constrained about impossibilities and all the reasons why not but don't be constrained just be free and dream about what can be and obviously that's what JFK was doing back in uh, the mid-60s about putting a man on the moon and there's a wonderful sort of YouTube on that and it just seemed to me that 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 is so important to what a coach can do because with that vision it means that then everything that you do irrespective of results is hopefully taking a step in that direction. And if you don't dream and you don't vision, then I think, one, you're limiting your current capabilities or capacities, but you're certainly putting a limiter on how you're going to deal with the future. How are you going to stay in front of the game? How are you going to potentially win games, uh, win tournaments, win events, win over a long period of time? What are the type of people that you need to help you chase down that dream? What are the type of support systems that you need to support those people and support yourself to be better at what you do? So I don't think all leaders are visionaries, but I don't think that's necessarily good, bad, indifferent, wrong or right. 
But I go back to what I was saying before, as coach of that Queensland team, what I had to do was work out my philosophy. And part of my philosophy is always about creating a vision. I knew that's what I, I did with people, teams, business that I'd operated in. And that was a, a central part, cornerstone, to, to my coaching philosophy. So that's what I would bring always to, to teams that I coach. And that's certainly what I still do with my corporate business these days. And, and not that I necessarily can dream for a company, but I try to get them to understand the power of dreaming and visioning and allow them to try to do that themselves. And it's not easy because I think we do tend to operate in, in mindsets and constraints that direct us in a, certain, in a certain way. And a lot of times when people put their vision statements together or whatever they want to call it, they can call it mission or they can, everybody can get tied up into semantics, but it's almost something that can just be cut and paste and put into another organisation just as easily. And it always seems to me that the vision has got to have the capacity to differentiate you from what else in the marketplace. Because in the end, if you're not differentiated, if you're not different, then you'll do the same as everybody else does. And how is that going to gain you some competitive advantage or how is that going to place you in a position to gain competitive advantage over a long period of time? So it does seem to me that, I think I mentioned it before, under sitting underneath vision, I suppose, is, is this notion of always trying to change the game. Don't accept the status quo, which is a never satisfied viewpoint. Look at just ways of being different inside the rules and the regulations that obviously operate inside any environment, any industry, there are those rules and regulations. So, But inside that, why do I need to play or why does our team need to play the game the same way as everybody else? There are different ways of doing it, so we need to explore and experiment and find those, and then try to apply those and execute those in game. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'd like to talk to you about innovation in a minute, actually, because your record in that area is quite long. But I'd like to just follow up on something you talked about with dreaming and, um, and setting a vision, because many teams these days create trademarks for themselves, words that summarize their aspiration. Now, when you moved on into the Australian cricket team, you developed very quickly the idea of the Invincibles. Can you tell us how you did this and how it was taken on or, or embraced by the team? Cricket Australia basically had a vision about making Cricket Australia's favourite summer sport, which is admirable a vision for an organisation and, and certainly aspirational for what they wanted to do as an organising body. But I just didn't feel that type of vision was exciting enough challenging enough 
aspirational enough for a team that goes on to a cricket field, an elite team that goes on to a cricket field. So for whatever reason, I conjured up the name of the, the title Everest. And so our first meeting with the team in Brisbane prior to the first test match in November 99, I talked to them about a range of things. And, and really, I didn't know too many of them that well. Obviously, I'd coached against them in state cricket. But at that point in time, there was only one Queensland member who was debuting in that game, and his name was Scott Muller. There was no other Queenslanders in the side. So I really felt that I needed to make a strong statement and a strong impact. And certainly always for me, the starting point is about, well, where is it that we're going to go? Where do we want to be as a group? And, and so that's kind of the vision stuff. So, so I said we're going to go on this journey to Everest together. And of course, that conjures up certain symbols in terms of being at the top of the world and, and not too many people can get there. It requires teamwork, hard work, risk, planning, etc. all those sorts of adjectives. And that's why Stephen Warren and I, I think, were always on the same path because his mantra was around taking the road less travelled. And he was certainly a person of cricket history. So with that, I said, well, if we go on this journey, and who knows how long that will be, but by the time that we finish playing as a group, we should have done something special in the game. And that kind of links back to this notion of changing the game and doing things differently than everybody else. So we should have done something special in the game that we would be given a label, not by us, but by other people who look at the game, and much the same as the Invincibles. Not that we were going to be the new Invincibles, but the Invincibles were given a label because they achieved something very special in cricket in, in 1948 and as an Australian cricket team. And so, therefore, the concept of Everest, the concept of the Invincibles, uh, for me, became quite interlinked. And so as a very visible beginning to that, certainly on the dressing room walls, in terms of some of the messages that were I was posting up there, there was the concept of Everest and what that meant, some of the things that we talked about in the team meeting and, and the, the idea of the Invincibles. And then we had one of the Invincibles, Bill Brown was his name, uh, come and present the two debutants, the baggy green caps, and that was Scott Muller I mentioned, and it was Adam Gilchrist, the other one making his debut for Australia that, that particular game. And right through that series, we took it upon ourselves to ensure that there was an invincible at the games or as many invincibles that could get to the game, and if there was some other presentation was to be made, it was going to be made by one of the invincibles. And so it was a Obviously, a successful series for us. We won all the test matches and against Pakistan and India, and we won the, the one-day series. I think we lost just the one game. Like anything, anything new, anything that you try, anything different, there's always going to be resistance because it is new and it is change. And everybody likes certainty and you like to do the things the way that you're most comfortable doing. And so one of the ways to overcome that as quickly as you can is obviously to get success. And, and we were successful and so that really I think began to cement at least this notion of chasing Everest albeit it would be defined in different ways at different times but as a group we were on about changing the game we were on about doing something different and we were going to create our own piece of history. John you have a reputation as being an innovator and you've talked about it in, in our discussion here you are not afraid to break with tradition you've used statistics heavily in your coaching uh, you introduced coding 
when in the use of video, Pilates, and then more prosaic things like not using a night watchman. But what stops more coaches these days from being innovative? The most difficult thing I, I see from at least elite coaching these days is that there seems to be far less patience, tolerance, understanding of the coaching process around teams and those who reside off-field as administrators or board members and probably answering to their shareholders or their stakeholders, which are fans and so on, and investors and sponsors, are very, very focused on getting results. And if results are not coming, as we said before, one of the easiest targets to change that is to move on the coach. So I think while coaches might talk long-term, their actions are all short-term. And so innovative practice is less likely to occur in such an environment, in my view. So if coaches are given the reins to develop a team over a period of time, then I think you'll see more innovative practice. You'll see more innovative methods. You'll see more innovative thinking and and more innovative behaviours and actions on the field. But while a coach feels so insecure that their next game could be their last game, then you'll always generally stick with what you know, potentially what's worked, and roll that out again. I guess, again, I was lucky in a sense that my previous five years with Queensland Cricket had demonstrated that we could not only be innovative and and experiment, but at the same stage be reasonably successful. And starting with that Australian team, same thing, that we were successful early, so that probably really gave me a bit more licence than maybe if we had not have been successful at the outset. And, and again, I, I faced the same thing. I, know I mentioned before but with Middlesex, when I went over there in uh, 1998, I was brought in there by the board on the basis that what you'd have done in Queensland, we would like you to do here in Middlesex because, again, they'd been a very successful club but had lacked, lacked success over the last 15 years or so and wanted to rectify that and wanted to make some changes and, and hopefully get some better results by the end of the season. And so at the same stage, uh, Mike Gatting had been the captain and almost long-time patriarch of the of the club had stepped down and he'd given the role to Mark Ramprakash, a young, very talented player who was, who'd come up through the ranks, was playing for England, uh, giving him the captaincy and then the other senior players, Angus Fraser and Phil Tuffman, the three of those were, were actually in England, were in the West Indies playing for England when I went over there for pre-season. And again, it was a similar approach. Culture, again, was really important for me and the signs that didn't speak to it being a team culture were things that I was really keen to target right from the word go. So, for instance, they had Roman numeral twos on their hats and on their blazers if you hadn't been a cap player and that was to signal that you weren't a cap player, you were a second-class player. You know you are playing first-class, you, you weren't regarding the same light as the other other players. And, and obviously they got other benefits as well, the cap players in terms of salary, in terms of cars, in terms of accommodation. So at pre-season we were changing a number of those things to ensure that when everybody walked on the field, everybody was in a sense an equal, albeit that you had different roles and obviously different skill sets. But that walked right in the face of how Mark Ramprakash wanted to uh, run the side and his main object was to uh, be personally successful so he could fulfil his ambitions of playing and 
well for England over a long period of time. So in the end, that brought us into, into conflict. Tensions were easily seen and easily felt through the dressing room and, and subsequently the team started playing very poor. In the end, when I fronted the board and was asked about what the future might be, it was basically the take Mark Rampert cash in the way that he wants to run the side or the way that I believe will be the way that I think you'll be more successful over a longer period of time, albeit that you may not be successful this season. So they opted for, obviously, the, the former, taking Mark, and so that was me gone from that role. But again, I think they were taking the short-term view. They wanted a quick fix, and I wasn't able to produce that for them. And so one of the best ways, therefore, to at least ease all the tensions in the dressing room was to get rid of one of us, and, and I was the obvious choice. John, you've had some outspoken players in your teams in the past. I'm not sure whether they were disruptive because I wasn't in the changing room. But I'm interested, what are your top tips on dealing with negative peer pressure within the team? Yes, look, I think um, no matter where you lead or what you do, there's always going to be some really strong supporters. There's going to be some strong negative vibes to what you want to do. And in the main, there's a big group in the middle who can sway either way. And cut to the chase, you know, we can talk about Warner here because Shane was an incredible influence in the dressing room. So when I arrived into that Australian mix, there was probably four or five players who were a fixture in that side at that time. The rest were coming into the side or coming in and out of the side and hadn't established themselves. So your fixed members were the two war boys. There was Warner McGrath and probably Slater would have been the other person. They were kind of fixtures in the side. The rest were kind of learning or trying to find a way that they could remain in the side. The likes of Langer, Hayden, Ponting, and I mentioned Gilchrist was just making his debut then. Gillespie, Lee, Martin, Lean, all those sort of names are worse around the periphery, in and out. You know, they hadn't established themselves. So, therefore, that's why Shane was an exceptionally strong influence in the dressing room. And as a coach and as a leader... That's why it's so important to understand what your philosophy, values and principles are because you're going to be challenged on those all the time, absolutely challenged on all those all the time. And the bigger the challenge, either by way of numbers of people who are challenging you or by the profile of the person who might be challenging you, it becomes so important that you live by them and you deliver them. So you, you, you coach with integrity. This is who I am. This is what I do. And I deliver that all the time. And so that means it's going to take you into conflict with some people or groups of people or situations at different times. It's not going to make you, therefore, popular all the time. But what it does do is it lets everybody know who you are, what you stand for. And so, therefore, that means every player, whether they like you or they don't like you, know who you are. You're not turning up on different days as a different person altogether because coaching, just parenting or or leading businesses, is about relationships and relationships is based on on trust. And if an individual cannot trust their leader, their coach or their parent, then it's very, very difficult to establish a relationship. Now, again, whether that person likes you or not, it just means that relationship is either a little bit stronger or a little bit weaker, but there's still a relationship there. But if the individual cannot trust you, then they, there's no way that they're going to actually develop any sort of long-lasting relationship with you. And so for Shane, it was at least 
reasonably easy in the first nine months or so because we're winning games. He was able to do what he does best and that was really good cricket. And, and again, he continued to do that right through his career. But it didn't really bring us into huge confidence. I must tell you a very quick story there where I guess it was a bit of a sense from his point of view that this bloke is a bit of a nutter. We were playing our first test match in Dunedin in New Zealand and I heard about Albatross Rookery that was supposedly 25 minutes down the road. And as I said, I mean, for me, it was always about trying to take people out of their comfort zones and, and outside of the dressing room, outside of their cricket bubble. So I said, right, well, we're going to go down and have a look at this Rookery because it's one of the few places in the world that you can actually access on the mainland this particular bird. It's a rare bird and incredible wingspan and something that we won't never we possibly won't get to experience again. So off we go and as a very as a novice coach in a sense, in those days you used to drive your own buses. So we used to have two vans and so I drove one but as a novice coach, Wani drove the other. So there was my number one mistake. So off we go. Number two mistake was that, that he led the way. So I was behind him. So after twenty minutes and we're on one of these little windy roads that's taking us towards this rookery where you single lane, you can't pass. He stops the vehicle, I stop behind him. And as I'm walking out to find out what's going on, so many things are going through my ears. The novice coach instruct him to take the vehicle forward because this is really important stuff. This is developing you as a person. All the people in your bus need to touch and feel and see and hear this albatross because it's an experience. It's a life experience. Do I just sort of listen to what he has to say and then work out what I need to do? So anyway, I get to the window, he winds it down, so I'm not going any further. I said, oh, yeah, and why is that warning? And he said, look, we've got a test match in a couple of days' time. How's that albatross going to help me play better cricket against New Zealanders? So he said, I need to go back and I need to get a massage and get myself ready so I'm better prepared to play. So right at the moment, I'm thinking, okay, this is not the time to go into the whole person, take out of your comfort zone stuff, or I'll run with that. So I sort of said, right, well, those who need to go back and Warning them to do some work on themselves to prepare for the test match. Jump in Warning's bus, he'll drive that one back, and I'll take the rest of you down to the, the rookery. When I'm standing in front of an audience, I'll always then say, I drove off by myself to go to the rookery. But of course, there were a few takers, and then there was the, the Steve Wars and, and people like that. So I probably had a bit of Anyway, we finally get down to this rookery, and there's a sign on the gate, it's closed. It's closed because we got there at, I don't know, 5 30, and the thing, the rookery closed at five o'clock. Right. I could get out. How, how can just birds on a rock, how can they have a gate up and stop you getting in to watch them? But it did. So, again, trying to sort of resurrect the situation, I, I looked up in the sky and I saw these birds flying around. And I tell the other guys that are there, you know, I said, I told you these birds are absolutely incredible. Their, their wingspan is such that they must be miles in the air and we can still see them pretty easily. And of course, I get a dig in the from one of my uh, Queensland boys who was on the tour, and he said, hey, Cage, there's seagulls, mate. There's a bunch of seagulls flying around up there, and I tried to uh, try to convince everybody that they were albatross. So as time went along, uh, we then went to India in 2000, and this was, you mentioned, the 16 test matches that we won in a row, and we were playing the 17 test match in uh, Calcutta in India, and there was a famous partnership with Blacksman and Drava that, in the end, took the game away from us. We had the capacity to draw it, but because we were kind of playing your strength is your weakness. We played a certain way and they won a 16 game, so that seemed to be still how we should continue on. But we ran into this incredible partnership and put us in a situation where we had to try and save a game, which we hadn't done for 
16 games beforehand, so we didn't know how to do it. And we lost the game. But through that experience or through that particular game, and, and Warney had gone into that series really underdone, really unprepared because he had a finger operation or a shoulder operation. So he was overweight and, and, and just so distressed all the time. And we, obviously the series was in one all and we still had an opportunity to win the series that, again, hadn't been won for some 30-odd years prior to that. And so Warney just didn't, wasn't responding to any of the physio, any of the trainers in terms of trying to work on having himself as fit as he could at that stage. And, and obviously that where he was was as a result of him still not looking after himself after this operation. So I spoke to the chairman selectors at home, uh, spoke to Stephen Moore and said, I've got a press conference coming up and I think maybe there's an opportunity here to say something that might trigger his notion that he, he is just not looking after himself. If he wants to continue to play for Australia, irrespective of this game, he, he's going to have to look after himself. But anyway, so press conference goes and I say something on the line and somebody asks, how's one going? And I say, oh, look, he probably could be looking after himself a bit better. I said something like that. Next morning. Out it comes in the papers, coach says Warren's fat. So at that point, Warney didn't talk to me for the, the next couple of days and right through the test match. But what he did, again, just continued to emphasise his passion for playing cricket and his passion for playing cricket for Australia. I mean, he gave everything he possibly could, both on the field and off the field. He was just amazing in the dressing room with everybody. That spoke highly of of the person in terms of him being a competitor, trying to bring both his technical skills to the game but also his mental skills to the game plus the rest of his teammates. So that probably strained, that, that was definitely a straining point of our relations. But what happened over time was that we began to develop a really strong unit of players that were there all the time. So the, I mentioned before the Haydens and the Langers and the Pontins, the Martins, the Lehmans, and eventually at Andrew Simons. There was a Cadditch, etc., and a Gilchrist. So strong unit. And so what happened in terms of the management of a Warren or any of the players that, that might at different times choose either to be critical of a coach or critical of something of the team or not even publicly critical, just be doing something that was not in the best interests of himself and of the team, then the group began to manage everybody. And that became really important to, I think, the success of the team because it really was around peer management. So while some things would come to the coach or some things would go to the manager or some things might go to chairman of selectors, in the end, a really mature and strong unit is one where it doesn't necessarily always require the formal leader, captain as well, to be the person who has to intervene in the behaviour of an individual. There are other people in there that can see that and do something about it. And so it speaks very much to two things. One is cliche about the standards you walk past are the standards you accept. And that's so true and that links to everybody's a leader. That's something I really believe. While the leaders have got to walk the walk and talk the talk, lead by example, etc. Leadership is in everybody. Therefore, if there is something not right, then it is everybody's responsibility to do something about that. And the more people that are doing that, the more mature and the more powerful that unit becomes as a group that can produce success, produce high performance. And so that, to me, is... As an example, I mean, more than the only example, as I said, there are other people at different times that 
stepped outside boundaries and so on. But in the main, we're hauled back in by peer management of, of some very strong people in the side. John, just one last question, if I could. You've been very generous with your time, but I'd like to ask a question around legacy. And what is it the legacy that you really want to leave as a coach? I think the legacy is firstly around the individual. So I always want, going to almost what we were just talking about, I always wanted players to be their own best coach. So in other words, part of my philosophy was to make a coach, make myself redundant. And to do that, that means players need to, to be very good at making good decisions when they're required to do so, both on and off the field. And so part of that is understanding when you're at your best, then what did I do to enable myself to perform like that? And if I can understand that, then I've got every chance of at least trying to replicate it. may not be able to, but at least you're giving yourself a chance to do that. So that's the individual. From a leader's perspective, I think it was always very much you use the word legacy, but it's always very much about if I wasn't here tomorrow, what are people going to say about me? You know, what is it that I did that made an impact in the group? And hopefully that was a positive impact. And then, of course, from the team's perspective, it is always about you can be so much better than what you are. You're always chasing that next Everest. You're always, as, as um, Wayne Gretzky was often quoted, and you, everybody can use quotes in, in all different ways, but you and Czechoslovakia, as you said, ice hockey is a pretty important sort of game, but I was studying in Canada 1986 to 88 in Edmonton where the Oilers were at the top of their game. And Wayne Gretzky, number 99, was obviously one of their key players in that period of time for them. He would always, or he was at least quoted as saying, I never skate to where the puck is, I will skate to where it will be. And to me, that sums up, again, with this notion of team or individual leaders. So, while I, I need to deal with what's here now, but I understand where I'm going and that's how I position myself. I think that's so important for the teams and leaders to at least under, have a, a good picture, a good hold on that and drive that within their teams, businesses, organisations. John Buchanan, thank you very much for your time today. It's been wonderful to chat with you and uh, it's been very inspiring and I thank you for being so candid and sharing those stories with us. My pleasure, Paul. Thank you. Hi everyone, it's Paul here, and you have been listening to our discussion with John Buchanan. The key highlights for me were how a short-term focus limits the ability of leaders to bring innovation into the teams they lead, his thoughts on handling disruptive or negative influences within the team, and the story he shares about the great Shane Warne and a seagull to illustrate this, and helping his players make good decisions both on and off the field as a key part of his approach to high performance. I hope you enjoyed it as much as Jim and I did. And just before we go, coaches are not usually the type of people who seek the spotlight. And so if you can put us in contact with a great coach that you know has a unique story to share, then we would love to hear from you. You can contact us using the details in the show notes.